It's July 31st, 2023. This is the best of Rook. Welcome to episode 275 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you, Salam, Dustan Aziz, Durut Basham. I hope you are doing well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Today's episode is part of a Best of Rook series. We're bringing to you for the entire month of August and today, even though it's the end of July, where we're looking back at some of our favorite interviews over the last three and a half years since we launched and some of our most entertaining moments and we're giving them to you. We've curated our favorites and we hope you check out these conversations, especially if you may have missed them the first time. Today, two interviews with two prominent Iranian American doctors working in different fields and different cities, but tremendously impressive in what they've both achieved. First up, he's like a Persian superstar dream kid, an acclaimed doctor and engineer with all the educational boxes checked off. But Dr. Abbas Adahali is a lot more than his occupation. He's an Iranian-American who is the first surgeon in the United States to perform a breathing lung transplant, a new procedure and possibility that he helped invent. He's the award-winning surgical director of UCLA's heart-lung transplant programs and a professor of surgery and medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. He's up first. And then Dr. Sina Jurabchi is an Iranian-American ear, nose, throat specialist and facial plastic surgeon who's become a social media sensation followed by millions of people on different platforms where he is known simply as Dr. Sina. We will bring you an interview with him as well on this edition of The Best of Rook. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. We are on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and CastBox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. You can become a supporter of this program by going to our website, rookmedia.com, and pressing the Support Us button, funny enough, and you become a Rook member on Patreon there. We really appreciate it. All right, let's get started. My first guest today is an outstanding Iranian-American surgeon who developed the first cardiopulmonary resuscitation device in physiological conditions outside the human body. He also performed the first successful heart-lung transplant at UCLA, and he's been the first surgeon in the United States to perform a breathing lung transplant. Dr. Abbas Ardahali was born in Tehran, moved to the United States at the age of 16, and since then, he's not exactly been a slacker. He is now the surgical director of UCLA's Heart, Lung, and Heart, Lung Transplant Programs, the William E. Connor Chair in Cardiothoracic Transplantation, a professor of surgery and medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine, and was also the principal investigator behind technology that allows for the transportation of a breathing human heart or lung for an extended period of time. 
Professor Arda Hawley has received a number of awards, including a Best Doctor in America distinction for the years 2007 to 2016, the Breath of Life Innovation Award from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in 2013, the Ellis Island Medal of Honor by the National Ethnic Coalition of Organizations in 2017, and the Los Angeles Magazine Top Doctors Award in 2018. And with all of this, he's also a champion of the Persian community in the diaspora and committed to helping spread a positive image of Iranian culture. Dr. Abbas Ardohali joined me from Los Angeles. Here is our conversation. Hello, sir. Well, good afternoon to you, and it's a pleasure to be um, on the uh, Rogue Conversation with you today. It's great to talk to you again. You know, you know, I, I'm I'm afraid I have to start on a note of disappointment with you because, you know, <laughs> life is hard enough for those of us who have failed our Persian parents by not becoming a doctor or engineer, but uh, but you uh, are an acclaimed doctor and engineer, and it really isn't helping the rest of us. You know. Well, I can I can tell you that uh, as I was bring, I was being brought up just like all of us. The importance of education was of paramount importance to us in the in our family, and uh, as as you mentioned, I uh, did not slack off much, and I have um, done my share of obtaining degrees and uh, pushing through with my educational process. I, I love that you're not uh, you're unapologetic about it. It's like it's like man a doctor. What what did you do? You know, let me just, let me actually, for the record, let's get it out of the way. Let me just read this. You completed your fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery at UCLA, your internal medicine residency at UC San Francisco, a master's degree in public health at UC Berkeley, a medical degree at Emory University School of Medicine, both a a master's degree in chemical and biochemical engineering and an undergraduate degree in biology and biochemistry. From both from Rutgers University, I'm sure that's not even the complete list, right? Should I keep going? <laughs> no, well, I think that pretty much sums it up. But I never thought of it as you bring it up, and uh, and I appreciate the the acknowledgement that that you uh, you have brought up with recognition of all of these degrees. Well, all joking aside, we're we're incredibly proud of you. I mean, you are uh, you're sort of a symbol for the community to look at. Have you always been an overachiever? Well, I have had my shares of, of um, areas where I have not um, disappointed my family, but I think that uh, this is uh, education has been an area of strength for me and 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 our family, and um, and I have um, obviously been blessed to have the ability to perform well in the in schools and have the good fortune of being able to educate to and and uh, and be able to finish the educational process. Uh, let me ask you first about being at the forefront of medical breakthroughs and the work you do in terms of medicine what you were just talking about. Let's let's start there. It's only been in the last decade that you have presided over the first breathing lung transplant. Now, I didn't know what that was. I've done my best to to get up to speed on it, learning about it. I mean, it, this is quite incredible. Can you uh, for our audience in a very simple way describe what a breathing lung transplant is? Sure. Um, as you know, the first uh, human heart transplant was performed in um, South Africa by a physician called Christian Barnard. Some of us may have recollection of that event. Over the past 50 years or so, um, for us to do a uh, any organ transplant, be it either the heart or the lung or the liver, what we do is that we stop the organ in the donor's body, 
and uh, put it on ice and then bring it to the recipient hospital where the recipient is located and then we perform surgery. Right. Naturally, uh, keeping a human organ on ice is never meant to be physiologic and as such, it leads to slow damage of the organ such that we have a limited time span where we can transfer organs from one hospital to the recipient hospital or taking it out of the donor body before we reestablish blood flow in the recipient body. Right. For hearts, it's in the order of about four to six hours. For the liver, it may be a little bit longer. For the lung, it's about six hours or so. And as a result, we are sorry. Not what is six shoot. hours? The 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 thawing the, of it, or or the, the I mean, what what it, what is six hours? The the window that you have before it somehow gets damaged. Correct. It's the safe preservation period. Okay. In other words, given the current technology and what we have been doing for the past fifty years, we cannot keep a human organ outside of a human body on ice for more than six hours. So, oh. if we have a donor in Florida we would not be able to share it with a patient in California. Okay, so it's not or, sitting on ice for weeks. It's, it's, this is a, it's a very short process, even if it is on ice. It's a finite process until the organ gets injured oh. and is no longer used or okay. usable. So um, we have to fight against this time, and, um, and we do everything we can so that this time is not exceeded such that we do this procedure in the middle of the night or we do this on an emergency basis or we send helicopter or airplanes to transport organs between one center to the other center. Right. But most importantly, we know that, that we have this finite time period beyond which we cannot safely keep human organs outside of the human body. Right. So this is something that has intrigued the, the, the minds of many of the transplant pioneers and the specialists for many decades. What if we could take a, uh, some of the donor blood and just pass it through the organ and pretend that the organ is in the donor's body hmm. being perfused with the donor blood? And in the case of the heart, the heart is still beating while the blood is circulating through it. In the case of the lung, the blood is circulating to load the lung, and we are breathing the lung as well. Air goes in and out, blood goes through the lung mm. and through the heart, and the heart and the lung maintains a near physiologic state, near normal state. As far as that organ is concerned, it feels like it is still inside that donor chest. Right. The challenge for us has been to develop this technology. Wait, wait a second. One, that, one step back. I'm, I'm. Uh, treat me like I'm in grade five here. So, so uh, that that is fascinating. Creating this avatar, creating this proxy for a human body with with which to keep the the lung, the the blood flowing, etc. What would let's say you were able to do that? You have been able to now. But let, in terms of this intriguing people, what would be the advantage of that? Well, the advantage of that are twofold. One is that the organ that we can transplant, even in four or five hours, it will be a better organ for the recipient because it has not been subjected to ice. It's been warm. So it's there, there is some d deterioration when you, when, when you put the organ on ice. 
Exactly. It is gradual, but it starts at time zero. Ah. A human heart is never meant to be on ice. What's the second advantage? The second advantage is that we can potentially keep organs alive outside of the human body for longer than six hours. Mm. And we can share organs between Canada and the United States or between United States and Europe. And an additional advantage of is that we can potentially repair the damages or improve that organ to be transplanted. Assume that, for example, a lung has a pneumonia in it. If we put it on the machine and we add large doses of antibiotics, and give it 24 hours, we can potentially cure that lung wow. of the pneumonia before we transplant it. Wow. Or the heart that has some bruising of the muscle. If we put it on the machine and let it repair itself, we give it some medications or some new genes that make it a better organ because the heart is now being metabolized and it's warm. It's perfused, so it can repair itself. So you're speaking now as if this is theoretical, but you've actualized this, right? This is now you have now done this. That that is the sort of thing that we are potentially looking at in the years to come. Have we placed an organ on this machine and made it better before transplant? Yes. Have we placed an organ on this machine and make it a markedly improved, different organ that is much more resistant to damages, not yet. Will it happen? We think so. We are optimistic that this is, as you correctly pointed out, is a, is a bioreactor for human organs so that we can make them better organs for transplantation. So this is probably a superficial analysis, but on the face of it, I'm guessing that keeping a, a lung alive, creating a breathing lung, is a lot more costly than putting it on ice. So this isn't something that's going to be accessible or available to uh, the average uh, Joe or, or, or Reza in the interim, right? <laughs> Correct. Um, it obviously is going to require additional costs and additional labor and resources, yet the potential to the larger community can be, can be remarkable because we can now replace organs for humans of, for any condition that, that they, are, they have a uh, damaged organ and replace it with a near-perfect organ. Wow. So that they are more likely to have enduring life with uh, intact organ function. So I'm fascinated by the science of this and, and the, this discovery and this, and this uh, what you've created, but I'm also fascinated by your role in this and your interest in it. I mean, tell me about the the intersection of Abbas being an inventor and also wanting to help people. Uh, is working on a new discovery like this, uh, like, say, ways of administering transplants, the perfect marriage of being that engineer and surgeon? I think that um, having been the fortunate person to be at the uh, forefront of the field of solid organ transplantation at UCLA and being able to be engaged with this technology at the very early stages gave me an opportunity to have a, um, a uh, wonderful position to lead and guide this technology in the early stages of development. Uh, 
I was involved in the design of the, uh, the product as well as in the early investigations in uh, humans and, uh, and, and beyond. And I was the uh, principal investigator for the, um, what we call this device, organ care system, OCS, for the OCS in the heart as well as uh, in the lungs. And, um, and I think that this uh, technology is uh, not only exciting and, um, and potentially transformative in the field of transplantation, but it is incredibly gratifying to be able to have a meaningful impact in uh, future lives. Mm. The ability to be able to um, offer life-saving therapy to patients with end-stage organ diseases um, in the years to come. But you have a meaningful impact by just doing the transplants themselves, the way they've, you know, the, 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 with the with the existing technology. I mean, there's there's something about you that um, seeks to to go deeper, to want to actually be at the forefront of discovering even even newer and better ways of doing this. Where do you think that comes from in you? Right, Jean Jean. I think I think what's um, what's notable uh, is the fact that when I do a transplant. I impact one person and one family's lives. Whereas if you do research, if you innovate, if you are pioneer, you actually may impact many hundreds and thousands of lives in the years to come. And that difference is something that if you ask any innovator or, or pioneer in the field is what drives them to do the work and get up every morning to persevere, despite the chances of success being relatively low. Mm. And I think that that is the driving force behind my uh, interest in not only help a person, a patient, one at a time, but try to innovate such that the, in generations to come, they can derive the benefit of this technology and what has been, what has been done so far. What about the instinct to, to help people at all? I mean, um, uh, I, I'm I'm curious where that comes from. I mean, I mean, you know, take us back. You, your 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 family. If I'm doing the math right, you would have left Iran before the revolution, um, much like my parents did before I was born. Unlike me, you were alive. You lived in Iran until you were 16. Then you came west. Um, what, what do you remember from those days in, in Iran? How do you characterize your time as a as a child in Iran? Did you have this instinct to to want to help? Well, I um, I look very um, nostalgically on uh, on my uh, short time that I had in Iran. I, I left Iran uh, when I was sixteen, but I can tell you that um, those sixteen years probably had more impact my, on my life and my personality and on who I am. A lot more than the other two-thirds of my life. Um, as you well know, it is part of any Iranian culture, family, and history is to do everything for their children and advocate for uh, their children to, um, to educate themselves and better themselves. I was no exception of that, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, born and raised in a family where education is uh, valued highly, hard work and commitment is um, strongly believed in, and most importantly, 
being kind and compassionate is considered to be part of who we are. I think that sometimes we look at the Iranian culture, especially for those who have a, a fairly narrow view of Iran and the Middle East and the and what they hear, given what the current climate is, and do not quite understand the human values that the Iranian culture, Iranian family, respects and honors. Right. And um, I personally believe that my life, my 16 years of life in Iran, um, have uh, without a doubt impacted who I am today and who and what I have done. Yes. How, how specifically so? I mean, would, have, would it have been obvious to anyone meeting Abbas as a 10-year-old as a kid that you were destined to be a world-renowned surgeon? Well, I think that um, part of it was uh, our family values, I think part of it was my robust and strong education that I received for the first 16 years when I was Iran because my foundation was built so strong because of what Iran's educational system was at the time. You were in Tehran, yes? In Tehran. So we're talking about the in, 70s in Tehran? Exactly. Right. Exactly, in, in one of the high schools there. And uh, I didn't go to Alborz. But I went to one of the better high schools, and uh, and I think that um, with that foundation, with uh, the belief that um, education and helping other human beings is of paramount importance in anyone's life, I think that I was equipped with what is absolutely necessary to succeed in a rigorous society like the U.S. and in an academic environment. Clearly, that we have. Yeah, but did you? But did you know? Did you know as a teenager that these are the kind of fields that you want to go into? That medicine might be the one. Well, um, I I still vividly remember I was about um, eight or nine years old when I was uh, watching the news when the first human heart transplant was performed, uh, and for some reason maybe I'm just thinking about it, but I still remember in a black and white TV that they were reporting, I think, at about 8 p.m. news that the first human heart transplant was performed in wow. in South Africa. And I think a, a bulb went on in my head. And then I think that the uh, values that my mother and my father instilled in me made me think that between all the professions out there, not that all of them are, are noble, no question about that, but what would be more gratifying than if you can actually do something that can directly help others. And, um, and I, I do not say that by saying, by thinking that other professions are not noble, sure, because right. every single one of us carry a load in, in making human lives better and uh, one, at, one at a time. However, I think that I am fortunate, I'm blessed to be in a position to be able to directly see how my education, my hard work, and, and my perseverance can translate into improvement in the quality of lives for a human being. Abbasan, why did your family leave Iran? Well, um, my, uh, my father had received his PhD in, um, in economics from the U.S. and went back to Iran um, as part of the, the Marshall Plan and, um, and lived there and uh, married my uh, mom. And uh, I have um, 
five siblings and and we came one at a time at around right before revolution and before high school most of us but my family my mom and my my mother and father um were very much tied to iran and and um and iranian values and they never wanted to fully emigrate so uh my parents unfortunately passed away about six or seven years ago yet um they continued and they loved the iran and what iran stands for the culture the human beings there Mm -hmm. and they wanted to reside there they obviously used to come here quite frequently given their children and their grandchildren but they never picked up residence in the u.s despite uh uh the many reasons for their um, attachment to this country as well they must have been very proud of you well i am more proud of them i think that um, everything that i have is owed to them i consider myself the most fortunate to to have been raised in that family and also in that culture so i think it's the combination and the interfacing of the family values the human values and the cultural values that have made me who i am and i think that i'm I'm, i consider myself incredibly blessed to have been the recipient of everything that everyone has done for me up to now you know part of the imperative of this show is to is to tell our stories in an attempt to uh, once we have this tapestry of stories to really forge what our identity is outside being of Iranian descent but living outside of Iran and being being part of new nationalities American Canadian etc uh, what was it like for you coming to America as an Iranian teen in the 70s well um i can tell you that um it, it was quite um challenging, exciting, um, mixed feelings, uncertainties. When I came to the U.S., it was before the revolution. Everyone here had a different image of of the Iranians and the um, Iranian um, students. Within two or three years with the revolution and the hostage-taking, right. things turned upside down. A lot of us who had come here with the intention of getting an education and going back and contributing to your to our own homeland, that intention, that um, vision turned upside down. I actually was applying to medical school right after the hostage taking. And I still vividly remember that my GPA was higher, my record was much better and um, I interviewed at one of the most renowned medical schools in Southeast I would not mention the name and my interviewer turned around and asked me so when are you going to release our hostages I think that that sentence sums up the the degree of challenge that we all those of us who are in the United States at that time faced that we were the face of the hostage takers for the America. And that was a challenging times for all of us. And for the past 40 some years, we have all worked and done our best to our best, to the best that our abilities allow to, to fabricate a positive image for the Iranian diaspora, for individuals of Iranian descent. I think you are a good example. And when I listen to Uh, some of your 
conversations on the on the website, you have a um, a wide variety of of who we are. Yes. And I um, I commend you for your effort to try to create this fabric of what the real Iranian diaspora is. But the facts are that we were um, dealt a hand because of the political upheaval. And um, this group of, of immigrants have done the best they can. And I am proud to say, after 40-some years, that we are amongst the most educated, the most uh, contributing members of any community that we have taken part with. But we also, as a community, have our scars. Uh, you know, right. there's no one I've interviewed on this program. I mean, sometimes people say, why do you keep talking about the revolution? Why do you keep talking about it? B- because it comes up. I mean, no, no, no one's family story um, can elude the difficulties that have existed, uh, you know, uh, in the last few decades for uh, Iranians, even outside of any sort of partisan political talk or something like that. You know, this, just just in terms of the realities of what of of the upheaval of a culture of a, of a of a nation state, literally, and then uh, the the manifestations of how that plays out over the years for people in the diaspora. You know, with respect to those scars, you tell the story. I mean, you've got this amazing doctor's tone, which is very, very effective. You know, when you have to deliver difficult information, I, I would imagine. But uh, you know, saying something like that in the calm tone that you say it does uh, perhaps betrays how difficult it must have been at the time. I mean, this is outrageous that somebody you're a top student. And that, you know, uh, and you're young, you're a kid and that somebody is who who has the power and influence to be able to get you um, into their program would say, when are you going to release our hostages? What does that do to your psyche? How did you work through that? Yeah, well, I think that it's it's incredibly discouraging um, because. Uh, many of us look at those positions of authority with so much awe that we think that they know what the correct answers are and and they know what the real issues are. But the fact is that they are also as uh, have a narrowed view on on many things. But the fact is that this revolution impacted all of us directly or indirectly. And I do not mean to say anything political, but the change in the political structure in Iran have influenced all of us in one way or the other. And I believe that in face of uh, enmity and, and adverse situation, we as a community always rise up and try to make the best of it. And I think that I know of many individuals under these circumstances with similar stories like myself who have made the best of what they have. And I think it speaks to the resilience of our community, the values we hold dear as as Iranians, and uh, the upbringing that, that we have had. And I remain quite, quite optimistic about our first generation in diaspora, my kids, 
your or your your cousins or others who were born or yourself even right. i um i think the prototyping is or stereotyping is going to go away that everybody should become an engineer or a doctor i um i think that now we're beginning to realize well, how sure. important it is yeah. <laughs> that that's true yeah <laughs> how important it is to be um, to be a lawyer, to be a politically active, or to be a community activist. Sure. To At be the end a, of the day, uh, we need a diverse community. We can't, you know, it doesn't, as, as great as it is to have doctors and engineers, it doesn't serve us to only have doctors and engineers. We need we need people in all professions to really, uh, and, and we need to integrate, you know, we need to exactly. really not, I mean, I know the Los Angeles Iranian community uh, has been there for a long time, but there's other places in the world World, and Toronto would be one of them, where the immigrant, uh, the the Iranian community is is a lot newer here for the most part. Not my family, but and there is a there's an insular quality sometimes with this community. Let's come and let's sort of squat here and just talk to each other and not integrate into the broader community. And and that's that's always been an issue for me in terms of exercising our social and 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 economic and and cultural uh, and political uh, clout as a community as we grow in numbers. Exactly, and I think that what you are doing, Jian John, um, with this with this podcast is is a uh, a good example of what we need to do as a larger community. We cannot, as you said, we can all be doctors or or, or engineers and be very successful, but I think that a broad based community needs more than just that. And the fact that I see that more and more on the next generation people who are involved in politics, who are running for offices, yeah. who are community activists, who bring recognition to the, uh, to the community. This is what we need to do as a, uh, as a larger society. We need to, be, to have representation at the table where the decisions are being made. We we went through that list of all the schools you went to in terms of your education, uh, your elevated, your amazing education in the, in the U.S. Uh, UC San Francisco, UC Berkeley, the Emory University School of Medicine, uh, Rutgers for your your masters and your your undergrad. Um, so during that time, you're in the states. Was it always a foregone conclusion at that point that you were going to stay in America, or or did you entertain the idea of going back to Iran even post revolution? Well, I've always envisioned that um, when I came here, I, my, my plans were, and my family's plans were, that we would educate here and we would go back, just like my father did. Yet, the dynamics changed. I um, may have, um, I, I actually have gone back on multiple occasions to give lectures and, and talks. However, I um, have never envisioned uh, moving back because of the variety of reasons. I think that um, I wish there was an opportunity for many of us to go back and give back to our ancestors and the families that we were part of. However, it has it has not happened. Uh, but what I try to have done is to number one, I uh, I have many visitors from um, from the Iranian universities and uh, and uh, medical centers who are interested in this field, and we welcome them to UCLA, and they spend from weeks to, to months in uh, here with us, and we try to help them with that. I've also gone back on multiple occasions um, to give uh, lectures at the uh, medical meetings, and uh, believe it or not, I've actually done transplants 
in Iran, in Tehran. So although a small part, but I do think that an integral component of, of a fruitful life is to give back. And um, I can't think of anything more deserving than to give back to, to the Iranian, individual Iranian families who are in need right now. I wish we could do more, but as, as all of us, I'm still optimistic that things will get better. The political climate will improve such that we can exchange in all fields between the Western world and the uh, and Iran. Well, you're you're in Los Angeles, um, which of course is long identified as one of the epicenters of Iranians who live in the diaspora. And you would, um, whether you like it or not, be considered one of the captains of our community. And uh, just just in terms of your your prominence and what you've accomplished, you've also been there for a while. H- how? Would you characterize the way you've seen the the Iranian community change or evolve over the years? Um, a very interesting question um, because uh, the one thing I can tell you is that there is no one answer to this question. Obviously, it's a very heterogeneous um, population that reside in in Southern California, and um, as time has changed or as time has gone by, the division, the, the impressions of this community has also changed. I think that um, um, compared to 30, 40 years ago, when many people were hoping to go back, everybody is now uh, determined that this is where their lives will be. Mm. The uh, first generations are still in the um, in the shock state or or recovering after that that this is where they and their families will reside the second generation which or the first generation that were born in the states um, are very much diverse and they have really interfaced with the american communities in a seamless way they have become part of the fabric of uh, southern california and um, they sometimes you can't even tell that their parents were are Iranians. Mm-hmm. A reflection of that is something we just talked about: their engagement in variety of fields and pushing the envelope, just like any other immigrant community, to uh, integrate fully in their new home. I think that one of the things that we as a group are recognizing is the importance of being engaged in our political system so that our voices are heard when decisions are are being made. As Iranians, we have been somewhat reluctant to get engaged in the political system, but I think that in any democracy, this is of critical importance. Yeah. To participate, otherwise, although, although of course our community is quite balkanized, even within that, correct, <laughs> or even more so. Which <laughs> we get into the the politics of, of of the West. You would know that sitting in Los Angeles after the last election, right? right? Very much so. Very much so. And and uh, everything that has transpired in the past uh, few years is a reflection that unless we all get engaged, anything is possible. In response to your question how the diaspora in Southern California has changed, I think that the one thing for sure is that the Iranian diaspora remains very successful um, 
in terms of the um, education, in terms of investment, in terms of assets, in terms of their political clout. Um, and that we are slowly um, transitioning to a uh, integrated part of the uh, an immigrant community where our children becomes part of the fabric. Mm. We are involved in the political system. We are a force to reckon with not only in terms of the um, education or in terms of uh, value, in terms of philanthropy, in terms of support, in terms of other factors that is integral to the success of, of any communities. I remain quite optimistic about what the future holds. You've said that. You've said you're, you're quite optimistic. What, how would you answer this question? If I said, what is the greatest barrier to success for Iranians in the diaspora, uh, either on a personal level or as a community? I would say coming together. We as a group need to unite our forces. I know uh, for Iranians or for, any, for many groups in the Middle East, um, coming together is a difficult proposition. But I do think that we need to... Um, develop some some organization um, in our community that have a voice, help them, support them in meaningful, impactful ways, and have them advocate for us as, as a community of great attributes and great strength. You know, you said something earlier uh, that I jotted down and um, and I want to drill down a little bit on because uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that you're not somebody who says things that you don't mean. You use specific words. And and so uh, normally I would ask you how you self-identify. I mean, you've talked about that. You've talked about, uh, you know, obviously you, you live in the States. Uh, I, I'm sure that on some levels you're a proud American there as well. But, but that you really, those first 16 years really impacted you, your parents. You really have this Iranian pride. And you said we have three things that sort of in our DNA, uh, so to speak, uh, um, uh, metaphorically, of course, I'm talking to a doctor. <laughs> um, uh, you said, you know, family values, human values, and cultural values. I think the family values part I get, and I think most people would understand who, who know Iranians or who are Iranian. What do you mean by human values? The drive in all of us to go out, out of our way to help another helping, help needing hand. I think that we have a... Um, a intrinsic uh, part of our culture and nature to go out of the way and, and help help others at the time of need. And um, I have seen that firsthand still in the Iranian culture the few times that I've gone back. I see how a community comes together to help another person in, in Iran, in, in Tehran, in our families, and when, when somebody meet, uh, uh, has a uh, challenge facing them. But I think that um, that, that human value of, of helping others at the time of need is something that, as, as we mentioned before, is part of what has driven me to pick this profession and, uh, and has formulated my, uh, my trajectory. Hmm. I think that that human values that are are ingrained in in our 
culture, and um, and I think that that has that has been a wonderful part of us, which I hope will remain strong and will never fade away, because we have faced many challenges in the past many past decades that could easily dissuade you from these yeah. um, values that you hold. You know, it's a, it's a good pleasure to talk to you. I have really enjoyed this. Let me come back to your profession that you just spoke of and what you chose um, based on those human values. Um, I mean, again, I you know, it's always a, a challenge with a program like this. It's a variety program. We're not our audience is not made up of doctors uh, necessarily, although there are many in the Iranian community uh, and listening around the world. For most of us. Our education around top-level surgeons has come from TV shows and movies. <laughs> so I have my Grey's Anatomy version of what you do, but what sure. what is the most challenging part of what you do from a medical standpoint? Um, I think the most challenging part is um, when you cannot help a needy person or a, or a person that you know would not have any other options without you. I think that the most difficult part of my professional career is when I lose a patient. And I wish there was a way that I could say that I would have 100% success, but it doesn't happen. It's 99 point some percent. And when you are dealing with that patient or their family, it challenged you to your core to be able to be comforting to them while maintaining your own composure. Even though I've been doing this for more than 20 years, it still continues to challenge me every time that I lose a patient or every time that there is a situation where I have to... Um, comfort the the family members yeah i can only imagine what uh, you having to do that is is like you know as i as i if we finish off here and i let you go I, it's very intense what you do right i mean i mean you are at the top of your game but i can only imagine it's an intense schedule it's emotionally intense you've talked a bit about that working quite literally with life and death how, how much longer do you want to be doing what you do huh that's a good question because my wife keeps asking me the same thing and okay. um and sometimes i to I get massive <laughs> <laughs> yes um and um and i do think that um there has to be a um a exit plan um I think that um, an integral component of, of, of that is to ensure that there is a succession plan and other individuals who have acquired the skill set and the knowledge base to be able to continue the work. And, um, and I um, will do my very best to ensure that this continues and because we have a commitment to patients. We have to ensure that this uh, goes on with improved technology, improved knowledge base. And I will do my part as soon as I think that there is someone whom I feel comfortable to be able to uh, assume the responsibilities. I think that you're absolutely right. I can think of a few other things that are less stressful than this. 
You can write some bestsellers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's been a it's been a great honor and a, and a true pleasure. And I hope we can continue the conversation. And uh, I thank you so much for coming on, Rook. It's a uh, pleasure to speak with you, Jean John. And uh, again, I, I commend you for what you and your colleagues do, because an integral component of a um, of a community is to have this level of uh, knowledge that that gets disseminated about who we are and what we do and you and your group play a, a very important role in that process thank you sir and thank you for all you do and and thanks again for coming on and and uh i'll let you get back to to saving lives merci all right you're welcome nice to speak with you take Hold care now. bye-bye bye-bye This is Rook episode 275, the best of Rook. Remember, for all things Rook-related, our back episodes, our funnies, our videos, our different programs, go to rookmedia.com. That's our hub of all things Rook-related, our website, rookmedia.com. Our next guest on this edition of The Best of Rook is an Iranian-American ear, nose, throat specialist and facial plastic surgeon who has become a social media sensation, followed by millions of people on different platforms where he is known simply as Dr. Sina. Dr. Sina Jurabchi is an otolaryngologist specializing in disorders of the head and neck, ranging from hearing loss to cancer. He did his undergraduate training at the University of Michigan and his medical degree at Michigan State. He's an appointed clinical assistant professor for Nova Southeastern University. He regularly teaches residents and students and lectures at various conferences. Dr. Sina is not only an influencer, but an educator. Since 2019, he has posted hundreds of videos explaining everything from ear tube surgery to the dangers of ear cotton swabs. He has had features on CNN, ET, Medscape, Headline News, and The Doctors. Dr. Sina Judabchi joined me from Pembroke Pines, Florida. Here is our conversation. Hello, sir. Hello, Jean. How are you? It's going to be humbled and I'm very honored to be on your show today. Thank you. Very, very nice to have you on the program. Thanks for doing this. Congratulations on all your, I was going to say recent success, but it's been a while that you've been uh, achieving great success. I, it's interesting to me. I mean, you're clearly a charismatic guy, but you're also a serious doctor. As I do that introduction to you, I'm thinking, is it odd for you that you're now being introduced in media appearances as this social media sensation, as if you're Kendall Jenner? <laughs> you know, it is, you know, one of the big things, and I always say this to a lot of like the residents and students that come with me, and it doesn't matter if you have 2 million followers or zero followers, it's a thing with doctors. And I always say, you have to check your ego at the door. Don't bring an ego into the clinical room. And I always kind of hold myself to that. So I don't let that stuff get into my head. My wife likes to say I do, but I don't. And uh, it's just something I keep myself in check. So I just, 
you know, you say that, it just bounces off of me. And I just keep moving on. You know, I don't let it phase me. <laughs> well, I, well, so, I mean, is it, it, having millions of followers, one would think you need an ego to at least um, uh, be doing those videos. So you've got, you've got something of an ego. But you also have kids. I mean, this your 10-year-old son, for example, does he think it's cool that his dad has suddenly become this social media guy? I think more my, my daughter is intrigued by it. You know, I overheard her talking to one of her friends and they were doing the classic, well, my dad does this, my dad does this. And she goes, well, my dad does TikTok. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> right. It's not, it's not important that you're an ENT. It's that the TikTok, right? That, yeah. Right. And uh, so she's, and I've actually had them be on a couple of my videos where they voice over. And I, don't, I think, and I've seen me on TV, I had a couple like segments on, on Miami News and I don't know how much they really grasp it. But I think they more enjoy the fact they hear themselves, you know, on the media every now and again. And, you know, I catch my son will be like, welcome to my YouTube channel. And it's just kind of like, I guess, the world we're in at this point. So, I mean, the story is, uh, you know, I can never tell. I don't know how planned this was for you. But but the story, at least, is that you you just made a video for fun of you. Uh, I think you were bundling up your your gloves from working as a surgeon or something. And then you, you just did a basketball shot with the gloves uh, and your and your robe into the into a garbage can. And you put a video of that up and suddenly that goes viral. Is that really how it started? You know, that's where I got a lot of attention, but I actually, I, I got drawn to social media from the, probably 2014. I posted my first YouTube video because I was thinking it'd be much better to give someone a video where they could always access for instructions on how to recover from surgery or how to clean your ears, or how to irrigate your sinus, hmm. rather than them getting one paper, which they crumple up, they lose in their car, you know, before they get home. So I started doing that, but I just wasn't as consistent enough. And then fast forward five years later, you know, I saw a lot of people having success in social media and I was intrigued and, you know, started saying, you know what, like add a lot of meds and say, you know, Dr. Cena, you, you're, you're kind of a cool guy. You should put yourself out there. I'm like, okay, why not? So it was this thing I like to do where I basically just bundle the glove. Um, you know, I think it's kind of an intriguing thing. You know, I'm a basketball player. So I was, you know, I always try to take my shot when I can. So I bundled the, my gown into a glove and I just, and I just shoot it. And, and the girl that was kind of rotating with me, she, she filmed it, we posted it, and it just kind of opened up a world that I didn't know existed, basically. It was, uh, there's a few people like yourself, especially the TikTok influencers or the sensations who seem to have, whose, whose ascendance seems to have come uh, concomitant with the, the period of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it's been really the last couple of years for you. How much do you think the pandemic played into your success or, or the, your, the interest in you in terms of people searching for medical help online and also having more time and inclination to be on social media while they're in lockdown or something? Do you, do you think it's something about that? I think it was, it was all timing. Um, you know, it's funny, TikTok was a platform that was looking to be legitimate. It was something that people thought as kind of a joke. So there was a group of doctors that started to get some traction as infotainment doctors. And we were communicating with corporate TikTok because they wanted to have more information videos for people. So we started to actually communicate with them on a regular basis. As they were kind of pushing our content, then the pandemic hit and it was just like gasoline on the fire. So they already had their vision of going towards that and it just there was an opportunity to really capitalize on getting information out 
And it just really just opened up, you know, a lot of different opportunities. Like, as you mentioned, it allowed me to get exposure on CNN. And, and I was able to actually start working with the uh, World Health Organization as a result. There's a couple of us doctors that were in communication with them as far as getting the word out on vaccination, mask wearing, proper self-care, and, you know, amongst other things, wellness. And, and so it was definitely an opportunity where people started to value health um, because everyone was scared and everyone didn't know where to go. And, and there was a lot of misinformation out there. So this was definitely an opportunity um, to kind of further that that chance of, of getting getting exposure to the world. When you you I've seen you refer to this as medical infotainment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great term. On the one hand, it seems like a great accessible way to spread important medical tips to the masses. Uh, on the other hand, medical infotainment sounds oxymoronic, as in. Should there be any time for entertainment when we're talking about health advice that could be quite crucial uh, in our lives? How do you navigate that seeming paradox? You know, I look at it, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think there should be both. You know, I think it's, I want to entertain you to the point where you don't realize that you're learning, you know, where it's like you look back on it and you go, oh my goodness. Oh, I, I learned this from Dr. Cena. I learned not to use Q-tips from Dr. Cena. I think that there's comedy and smiles and just good vibes go a long way. And, you know, a lot of times I think the classic perception of a doctor is just droning on dull, neutral, bland toast type of character. Right, right. I try to be the opposite. Um, I think it just comes down to communication. You know, if someone's smiling, if someone makes a joke, if someone is, you know, can get to a point and communicate well with you, you, you will take their message in, in a more informative way. And the beauty of some of the social media it kind of forces you to do that in an effective way. You don't have that much time to go on and drone on. So I do think that there, there, there is relevance in, in that. And you're seeing it in people on these mediums where they learn how to uh, invest in real estate, cryptocurrency, right. stock market, right. all these different knowledge platforms are existing in, 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 in infotainment. It's definitely helpful. But I mean, you're young, you're good looking, and you're a TikTok guy now. Do you, <laughs> I mean, do you ever, I can't take that in seriously. No, I no, but well, I mean, it's that. true though. Is there any part of you that goes, "I'm going to be taken less seriously as a doctor somehow"? Like that somebody's going to go, "Oh, he's the guy on social media. He can't be as as experienced or as as good a doctor as the old guy that we've been going to for a hundred years." That that isn't on TikTok. You're absolutely right. And in the beginning, when we first started before the pandemic, um, we got a little bit of that. And maybe not so much as me, some of my other colleagues, they got that feeling of they were affecting their credibility because they're on this platform of people that were dancing and, and, and doing jokes. Um, but, you know, slowly as people kind of stop connecting dots that don't exist and they actually digest and see what you're doing and that got wiped away. And I think the pandemic um, allowed us to have that that credibility a lot faster hmm. maybe it might have been a longer ride up it kind of got us there so i really didn't feel it too bad there was moments of it and and i'm pretty careful you know i think us as persians we are talented at how we are perceived and our, our you know how we come off how we look like all this stuff where i'm seeing all these other doctors doing cringy stuff the inner persian in me was able to kind of keep the radar and check where i wasn't going to put myself <laughs> so out there i could be professional right but intriguing. Right. I think we're masters of that. Right, right, you right. Do you, thank do you, our mothers. Do you, do you, I'm going to get to the Persian part. Do you, do you have a, I mean, at this point when you make this stuff, do you have a team? Do you have like a, somebody who follows you around with a, a video camera? How, how are you creating all this content? So 
uh, in the beginning, it was uh, pre-meds and med students. It was people that wanted more time with me in the operating room. And so they were kind of capturing content. And I was doing a lot of the editing and a lot of the, the thinking as far as what I wanted out there. Um, and then, yeah, there was a point where I had like a full-blown editing team and they were helping me, but it didn't really feel like me or it didn't feel as authentic. So I didn't like it. It was too polished. And I, I liked the aspect of being genuine, a little bit raw. And so I kind of pulled back on that. And so now um, I basically kind of go back to the, the med student thing. I think it's kind of a little bit of, of a you know truth to it. And I kind of just spearhead the, the content creation on my own, which is definitely a little more cumbersome, a little bit more difficult, but uh, it's kind of what's worked for me. So I'm going to stick with it's it. It's funny. You should. It's interesting, isn't it, with social media? We've noticed that even with our programming that nobody wants it to look too slick nobody wants it to look like like network television right the more it looks like you're just some doctor who's making these videos yourself the more appealing it is somehow i guess it plays it plays into a sense of authenticity exactly you want to be able to connect with the person that you're uh watching right that's why people love the kardashians they feel like it's like their their family you know there's a there's a rawness to that family. There is a, a rawness and it's something you can connect with. Something that's too polished, just too distant, right? Mm-hmm. Something that's a little bit flare, uh, flawed and and something that's a little more relatable it connects with you. It moves the needle a little bit more for people, I think. You mentioned being Persian. Take me back for a moment. I know your, your family left Iran right around the time of the revolution and you were born in the States. Is it true that your father was a, a prominent doctor himself in Iran, yes? Yes, yeah, so he, uh, it, it's kind of funny that he worked with the World Health Organization for legitimate reasons, and I worked for it uh, via TikTok. So, <laughs> we, you know, I think that makes me laugh. But, you know, he, uh, he basically did his, his all his schooling in the United States at, at St. Louis University, went back to Pallavi and set up this uh, center of medical education with the World Health Organization. He worked there for about 13 years. Uh, there was a, a point in time where we set up this cath lab where the Shah actually came through and uh, basically toured the whole facility. And Sorry, is, is this Pat Levy University? Or? Mm-hmm. All right, okay. And so um, he basically was there. And then right around 1979, 1980, um, while the revolution was ongoing, he got a letter from the dean of the medical school in, in Chicago, someone that was very familiar with his work and and he had been very well known because of the World Health Organization. And they basically reached out to him saying, hey, would you like to come for a sabbatical, you know, wait for things to cool down, come over here and work at, at the medical school. And so my mom and him went, and my mom's like, 40 years later, here we are. Mm-hmm. They went and never came back. So um, it was just kind of a, a unique thing where then more of our family started coming through and they all kind of stationed up in Michigan. And that that's basically where I grew up. Did they... Do you think they had an expectation in the beginning that they were going to return to Iran? In other words, yes. when you were born, was it was the thought we're actually going to, you know, you're, we'll, we'll let you assimilate a bit here in America, but we're eventually all going back to Iran? Well, technically, I wasn't a thought yet. I wasn't on the world. But for my sister, uh, they were they were thinking, OK, let's go to uh, Illinois. Let's be there for a year. We'll cool, let things cool off and we'll come back and resume our life, you know, back in Shiraz. Um, and it didn't really go that way. And they, they started making more and more connections. And then I was born in 82. And then more family started coming. And you, you want to be where your family is. 
you, you seem very American, Cena. I mean, I, I, it's a funny thing to say, but uh, as somebody who people say, oh, yeah, you seem kind of Canadian because I grew up uh, in the West like you. Um, but you're a basketball player. You're a guy in Florida. You know, your English is perfect. And, and you got a, an American kind of sounding accent. Were you brought up super assimilated? How, how Persian were you growing up in Michigan? I think I think I was to looking back on it. Um, I wish I had a little bit more of like a Persian influence. I mean, let me let me say this carefully. You know, we, we grew up celebrating Nowruz. You know, we we we're a full blown Persian family. Um, I think my only and I'm saying on the regret of I wish my Farsi was a little bit stronger than it is. That's that's my like longing regret because I I get uh, Persian patients that come through and and I can I can you know muster up a conversation. Uh, but it's just, it's just, I wish it just flowed off the tongue a little bit smoother. And, um, but other than that, no, we, we grew up pretty Persian. Our, thankfully in, in Michigan, there was probably about 10 or 12 kind of Persian families we kind of grew up with. And it was like, we felt like we had our own community. Um, I had my cousins there. So it was, it was a strong community of Persians. And, and um, I definitely, you know, felt the culture. But very much, you know, I definitely have, have an American influence. I mean, that, that's kind of, it's, you know, kind of how I grew up. And was it somehow obvious growing up that you were going to follow in the footsteps of your father and be a doctor? No, not really. He actually, he didn't want to push us into medicine. He, he really wanted to find our own, um, our own path. That, that would make him an extraordinary Persian. Yeah, right. He was <laughs> he's smart. Not, he's not pushing you into being a doctor. Uh, but I think also kind of go back to your original point of, of, being Persian, he didn't want to push it too hard on us. He wanted to kind of find our way mm. where I think a lot of other parents are kind of forced it. So you're going to learn, you're going to do everything. So he, he, uh, he was very much hands off and said he didn't want to be forced into it because his father had basically uh, forced him into medicine. So um, the experiment worked, you know, right when I was 18, I did some volunteering work and I did some volunteering work at University of Michigan uh, pediatric burn unit. And I always talk about this because you know, I say that word and it just brings back some PTSD memories and mm. things are just like singed in my brain. Some of the sites that I've seen and it's great. It's humbling. It gives you perspective that, hey, there's people like this out there in the world. People need help. And, and it connected with me. And it's it's something I definitely draw upon to kind of humble myself. And, and I think from thinking about that, you know, I just I kind of knew I was going to go in that direction. I just had, had a lot of sympathy and empathy for what was going on. Um, so not being forced by my parents and having a formative experience kind of solidified my path to becoming a doctor. Did you ever, uh, have you ever considered, uh, I don't know if you've visited Iran, have you? Would you consider actually going, living there or working there? I would love to go to Iran. I've talked about this a lot. And, you know, another regret is my parents went back with my sister when I was studying for my boards. Um, yeah, I would. I would talk about it every year. It's one of these things. We I was in California last year, and I talked to my cousin's wife about going out to Quiche and checking out all these different places. And I would love to go. Like that's still. I'm I'm Persian, man. I mean, I grew up in 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 America, but I'm Persian, and and there's there's an emptiness for me not going there. And so I think at some point I will. Um, you know, it, it is, does seem a little daunting, you know, to some degree now with where life is, but at some point I do want to go back there. My kids are, you know, they, they have Persian in them. I want to be proud of where they came from.
you know, we're a great society. Wait till you start doing some of your content in Farsi. It's going to be, you're going to, you're going to suddenly have 80 million new followers, you know, uh, trust me. Why did you, Sina, why did you go into, um, ear, nose and throat as a specialty? It seems, this is just as a non-medical person, but it seems particularly, uh, difficult you know kind of gross like it's a, it's <laughs> hard work uh and having gone and seen an ENT doctor a, a bunch for for my hearing over the years and stuff as a as a rock musician I, I I um well I'll tell you about that relationship in a moment but why why is that something that appealed to you equating what we do just to earwax is like equating a dermatologist to only popping pimples and actually maybe that's not a good example let's <laughs> let's say you know there's a lot of what your nose and throat uh, can do. We're actually head and neck surgeons. Every surgery from the clavicle up that's not in the eyes or the brain, we're doing. Mm. You know, we're taking out tumors, we're taking out thyroids, we're doing uh, sinus surgery, doing cosmetic surgery. It's a really versatile field. So, you know, every pre med and med student goes through a path of do I want to be a surgeon or do I want to be a, a, a medical doctor? Once you make that decision, you kind of go and look at all these different specialties. And Ear, nose, and throat was particularly interesting to me because there was a lot of finesse with the surgeries. You know, you're dissecting off these critical structures in the neck, dangerous structures, dangerous nerves. Um, and you're using a lot of cool instrumentation. I'm a techie guy. Mm. These scopes, these navigation instrumentation, the devices you're using, it's always an evolving field. Um, it just kind of gravitated towards me where you have a clinic that takes, you know, some intelligence. You know, you have to understand many different things. You have to be a neurologist. You have to understand uh, allergy, immunology. You have to understand internal medicine. And on top of the fact that you're a surgeon, I think it was one of the most diverse fields. I can treat infants to a, to, to seniors. Mm. You know, I'm not just bottleneck to one right, person. Right, right. So I really, it's such a diverse practice for the head and neck that that's what kind of appealed to me. And the fact that I could be a surgeon where also we can fix a lot of things. A lot of professions, they can't fix your condition. Neurologists can't fix a lot of things. Rheumatologists cannot fix a lot of things. I can fix your conditions. There's a lot of victories, a lot of satisfaction. But, but you're the bearer of bad news when it comes to hearing loss. I know that, which is hard to fix because I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the work you do because I, I went to a, I've been to an ear, nose, and throat specialist a, a few times um, because I spent ten years on the road playing in a band with a, wow. a monitor full blast next to me, you know, as I played drums and sang, and, and so, so I have, as it turns out, in my left ear some you know 30 percent hearing loss or something from just the blasting of that monitor um which which is why i kind of fear seeing this doctor because i'm always afraid to take that hearing test and find out it's gotten worse or something um but but a lot of the things that you the kind of general um but really smart uh, lessons that you impart in your videos, I've learned from him um, because uh, I guess these are things that ENT doctors or people in your field would know, but the general population is is really not uh, that aware of. And so let me bring up a couple of them and you can teach us here. Um, he has taught me, you know, I remember him saying to me, never, ever use a Q-tip. 
And this is something that in your ear, that is. And this is something that you've you've got videos on that you've really made something that you is mm-hmm. a big deal that and you've fortunately you've had you know, there's hundreds of thousands of views on these videos, so so people are consuming this information. Tell us why Q tips are so dangerous. Well, first, it's it's a blunt tool. You're not you're not scooping anything out, you're pushing it in. And whatever you're retrieving out, there's a good portion that you're pushing that in deeper. And that's going to require much more of an invasive procedure to get out. Um, but the better way to think about it is to step back. What is the purpose of earwax? Earwax protects against infection. It moistens the ear canal. It's a self-cleaner. The wax kind of spirals out of the ear canal and cleans the ear itself, and it protects against foreign bodies. So there's a purpose of earwax that we don't need to basically manicure or take care of. Uh, but the problem we see with a lot of Q-tip users is that you create chronic conditions. You can create dry skin. You can push the wax in deeper. You can traumatize the ear canal and the ear drum. So there's definitely more downside than upside of using a Q-tip. There is definitely like a soothing aspect of it. But let's let's be honest, mm. right? But the reality is is that the ear is very much like an autopilot organ. You can just let it be, and it'll handle itself for the majority of people. Um, there really isn't a benefit. If you read the Q-tip box, it says not for ears. So it's not intended for uh, use in, the, in, in what we like to commonly use it for. So other than when we go to the doctor and get our the ear blown out with the, or, you know, with the water or something like that, I mean, wh- what are we supposed to do at home to clean our ears? Nothing? Nothing. The majority of people, nothing. Now... There's some people that have smaller ear canals, right? They, they, it's, it's like bottlenecked. And so it's hard for the wax to come out. Those are the people that need us or may need to do other things. So the other things include just softening the earwax. So baby oil or olive oil is always a safe thing to use. Moisten the wax. If you know your eardrum is intact, if you don't have a history of a perforated eardrum, you can just use a syringe. You could syringe irrigate your ear or when you're in the shower, have the shower water go into the ear canal and kind of irrigate through as long as your, your ear drum is intact. So that's what I recommend for those people is softening it with, with a baby oil or mineral oil for a couple days and trying to self-irrigation. If that doesn't work, come on in. And then also another topic to talk about is these cameras. People have these, these, these camera, iPhone cameras, and um, where the base, like a USB camera pokes to, it plugs into your iPhone and you can actually see uh, mm-hmm. when you're scooping out of the ear. And, you know, honestly, I think that's case by case. You know, it depends on, you know, if it's a 75-year-old person doing it, I'd be worried about the dexterity of that person. Um, but if it's ear wax and it's on the outer aspect of the ear, I actually don't have the biggest problem of you doing that. Uh, but I also, again, going back to our original point of, there's a purpose for that wax there. We don't need to take it out. In fact, it's protecting you. Uh, but that might not be a bad utility down the line of using that camera more regularly. I remember this specialist of mine used to say, don't ever use the type of earphones uh, that you put in your ear, like earbuds or AirPods. I'm thinking if that was ever a rule, um, you've kind of lost that battle because it's become so, they've become so omnipresent. But how do you feel about that? Do you counsel people to use the kind of earphones that are exterior that you like, I'm like, I'm wearing right now? Or do you, do you think that it's okay to put the AirPods in? I think it's okay to put the AirPods in. They're just, they do two things. They can push the wax in deeper and they can put pressure on your jaw joint, which is right there. Um, and also can trap moisture. 
So I think that you're more able to do more extended listening periods with over-the-ear headsets, but I'm okay with with AirPods. I use them myself. Um, what you have is great. Over-the-ear noise-canceling headphones are the best sort of headphones. And you know, a good a good rule of thumb with any sort of hearing device. And I've said it a couple times. Uh, I'm like, my media is a 60-60. 60-60. Tell us about that. Yeah. Not a lot of people know about this rule. Um, it's a pretty. It's something you can relate to. So the idea is not to listen to more than sixty percent of your iPhone volume for more than sixty minutes. People don't realize that duration of of listening can sometimes be just as harmful as an acute, intense one minute exposure of a loud noise. And it seems like a lot of people can connect with the idea of like a sprained knee or a sprained ankle, right? So if you if you're if you're running on this on this knee. Uh, for an extended period of time, you, you can wear it out. Just as bad as if you're if you're acutely running on it too. So the idea is just you want to be very protective of your ears um, because once you lose that hearing, there's not much we can do. Not much we can do to recover it. We can help it, but not much we can do to recover it. So the 60-60 rule is a good way to keep yourself in check and also taking breaks um, after that period of time because a lot of people will listen to podcasts or watch shows um, or I had a guy that does a lot of lawn care. He blasts the hearing or blasts the sound to try out the lawn care. Right, right. Um, and so that's going to, you know, that's going to be a problem down the line. What do you make of the fact that some of your most popular content tends to be, um, uh, I don't mean, I don't know how to describe it, kind of gruesome. Yeah. I mean, you have yeah. a video where you've removed some mucus from a nose that looks like uncooked bacon. Uh, and it's got a 700,000 views and I probably more on TikTok. I'm just looking at the Inst- Instagram video or something. So wh- what, what is that about? What do you think people are, are interested in when it comes to that? You know, it's, it's just, it's invoking an emotion. It's not everyone's going to connect with the 60, 60 rule. Right. But I will most certainly more consistent get an emotion out of that piece of bacon looking like mucus coming out of the nose. And so where that emotion is good or bad, it's invoking that. And, and I'll say I wish it was the other way around. I wish people were more emotional and passionate about the 60-60 rule. And I don't want to be relegated as just the gross doctor. I want to still give you that information. But it does offer an opportunity to get a wider path of exposure for people. And, and that's just the way the world is. It just, it just offers a, a reaction that you know, will then you know, require something to, to react to. We'll certainly be linking to your platform. So if anybody wants to see what kind of objects can be pulled out of a nose, um, <laughs> they could they could check out Dr. Cena's uh, platform. Um, you you've been expanding into the metaverse space with NFTs and 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 crypto. It's it's not been a good couple of weeks for crypto and NFTs, but mm-hmm. you've launched something a few months back called MetaDocs. Mm-hmm. What is the idea? So the idea actually was came across. It came inspired by a lot of the social media um, influence. So meaning a lot of people um, in the beginning stages that followed me were, were pre-meds, were medical colleagues, people interested in medicine. And so I felt this could be an opportunity where people could have a chance to connect with people um, that, are, that are social media influencers, but in a more reliable fashion. So we envisioned like the pre-med being able to reach out to, to us, to ask about how to get in the medical school, how to get through certain adversities while you're in medical school, or the colleague that may want to connect with us as far as um, talking about medical procedures or just some sort of like 
like grouping uh, uh, opportunity to kind of connect with us or anyone that's interested in just general medical information. Um, so we, we kind of view this as an opportunity to kind of use this interesting technology and use it as almost like a membership card, uh, but more importantly, be a vehicle for, for charitable donation, which I thought was, you know, an opportunity to do something special in that space in a space that is kind of dishonest in many ways. There's a lot of what called rug pulls that are in this space. So, so would there be an avatar of you that I, that I would then go in the metaverse and be asking advice from, is that how it works? So think of it as there's, there's 8,888 pictures of different style of doctors, females mm -hmm. and males. And so each one is unique. You would buy one of these and it would almost give you access to this membership mm -hmm. um, that you can connect with, you know, various big social media doctors and have an opportunity to engage with them more reliably. You know, if you look at all of our, our, our DMs, you know, we have hundreds of DMs every day. We can't get through any of them. Right, and there's right. a lot of people that are that they take offense of that. Um, and the reality is just there's just no bandwidth to do that. Right. So this is an opportunity for people that, that want to have that further connection to kind of do that. But also while you're doing it, a big portion that's going going to charity. So that was kind of the motivation. And it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of been on hold a little bit with what, what the, the current market is, but something that we're very passionate about. We have a lot of ideas what we can do. With well, that. also, I saw some articles that, that, that there's some backlash that has been written about it in the medical community that Metadox is not an actual licensed yeah. telemedicine service. Is that a real thing, the backlash, or, or is that just, yeah, I know, never I know how to trust these kind of articles, you know? You know what it is? It, and, and I think a lot of it was our fault because we didn't do proper messaging. It was, it was really exciting, got the word out. We mm. had a lot of brainstorm thoughts, so people were connecting the dots that don't exist. They were like, oh, these guys are gonna do surgical, you know, metaverse surgeries, and they're gonna treat us medically via the internet. And no, we just wanted to be more of like a social access. and. That was kind of like, you know, it's funny for someone that's seasoned with social media, we definitely failed there. All of us failed together as far as getting like proper messaging out there. We really want you to be a social access device and kind of like people that are in our direct messaging to get better access, but also kind of have that charitable opportunity. And, and what had happened was they reached out to people that fully didn't grasp the project and they started talking and then they created this narrative and then... We just got kind of, you know, the rest is there. But gotcha. that's kind of what the project is. Gotcha. And, yeah. you know, we're working on trying to make sure that the messaging is clear and concrete moving forward. A final couple of questions for you. Um, uh, first of all, I mean, do you, do you, it, it, it all seems like this is happening quite quickly in terms of your store growing in social media. You've got these um, appearances that now on TV shows that they're increasingly asking you and, and your, your numbers are growing. And uh, do, you, do you have a plan for this? How, how you will navigate your time as you get more and more popular in social media? Can you see yourself giving up your daily practice and becoming some sort of Dr. Oz, pre-politics, that, that, that so, type of thing? You know, I, I tell my wife this, I tell my family this, I'm not here to be a movie star. I want to be an infotainment guy. And I've had, I've had a couple different shows actually reach out to me to start a show, and we've declined them. You know, I'm a, I'm a family guy first, and, you know, I think there's a point where you start going a little too deep. It can be a little bit damaging, and, you know, I, I don't think it's worth it for me. That's not my priority, and... It's funny, you may not even believe me and you're like, well, why are you doing this? I think this, this opportunity, what I'm doing, I can ride the line where I can get to the world my information. I don't feel it too much in the home base or in the clinical base and I get it every now and again, 
Uh, but to go bigger than that, that's, that's not my desire. So I'm going to probably stay in this lane, continue to be a doctor, continue to just infotain and whoever I can inspire to go in medicine, I'm going to continue doing that. And that'll be the plan. Keep it simple. You seem to be doing a great job of, the, of balancing it so far, but I can only imagine there's going to be more difficult decisions ahead as your star uh, grows and, and your wife starts to get um, annoyed by how many people are calling you the handsome doctor. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but a final question, you know, I, I have to, I think about your dad and I think about your family, your dad there, the, 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 you know, the great doctor teaching at Pahlavi University and bringing all that expertise. What does he make of of his son um, becoming a social media sensation as a doctor. Oh, he loves it. He, he would go on the shows. He, he would eat it up. I mean, he's, he's like the elephant in the room. He would, he would relish it up. Maybe he should be the guy here. Like he, <laughs> Maybe he, he should. You should, you should bring him on. <laughs> he, is, he is an intelligent, well-traveled, wide-knowledge-based He's an impressive individual, and he 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 would do well with it. And he's he's very proud, and he loves he loves seeing the, this uh, this sort of attention. That's for sure. He's he's proud. Doctor so. Doctor Sina Judabchi, it's it's um it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm I'm thrilled with all your success, and I thank you so much for making the time. I know you're a busy guy. Really appreciate the conversation today. It was a pleasure to chat with you. I'm happy to come back, and and I I hope your channel continues to have great success. I think it will. Thanks, buddy. See ya. Have a good one. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Sina Jurabchi on The Best of Rook joining me from Pembroke Pines, Florida. And this is full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook-related, go to our website, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can also support us by pressing the Support Us button. Thanks to the amazing team who put these best-of shows together. Talented Anahita, Smart Pega, Savvy Rohan, Bearded Omid, Super Parisa, and Sound Person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. So if you're listening but you're not actually a subscriber, it is free to subscribe on any or all of our platforms. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can also find us in all forms of social media. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, here it comes. Mizun Bashi.